William McRaven was the commander of the U.S. Special Force Command. And he gave a very uh, famous speech at the University of Texas in, I think it was 2014. You've probably heard the speech. It's become known as one of the greatest and wisest motivational speeches that has ever been given. Sometimes it's called the make your bed speech. Because what he did was he took the motto of the University of Texas, what starts here changes the world, and he used his time in the SEALs, the Navy Special Operations Unit, and what he learned in his training, in his SEAL training, which is a, one of the most rigorous training um, schedules you can go through. And he gave 10 things that he learned through his SEAL training, and he admonished the people that they would change the world if they lived according to these principles. And the ninth principle, I think it was the ninth one that he gave, he talked about his, uh, what the, in SEAL training is called Hell Week, and it is where there are hours of no sleep, and one of the things that happens in that um, week is that they're led down to these mud pits, and he describes them this way. Hell Week is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day, you notice how he says special day, at the mud flats. The mud flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud and will engulf you. You paddle down the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold mud, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure from the instructor to quit. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit, just five, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up, eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night, one voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. We knew that if one man could rise above the misery, then others could as well. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. And at the end of this section, he said, if you want to change the world... Start singing when you're up to your neck in the mud. I don't know about you, but I feel like we're up to our neck in the mud. Damon already brought that to us this morning, didn't he? Such encouraging words. Damon, thank you for those. Um, and yet, the Bible speaks into that mud pit. The Bible tells the people of God, how we live when we're up to our neck in the mud. Because we know that being up to the neck up to our necks in mud is a temporary thing. Eternity is spent with Jesus, and when we compare eternity to now, now will be over. And the older I get, I feel this. Do you? Do you, do you feel as you get older that time is slipping away? 
I look at kids who are four or five years old, and I tell their parents, by next Friday, they've got the car keys. It's that quick. But we get a new perspective on the world, don't we? Because we realize eternity never ends. I mean, my day's in before I get up some days. That's what it feels like. I work all day, and all of a sudden, it's time to go to bed, and I'm tired. I feel like it, but I don't even know where the day went. Eternity is forever. It will never end. But in this life, we get to practice what we'll do in that life. And in that life, we will sing a never-ending song to our Lamb face-to-face with glory. And yet we are told in this life we do the same thing. So if we want to change the world, sing. One of the things I appreciate of some of the other cultures that we don't have as much in the United States is the corporate community mentality of singing. You, you, you go into the UK and they're singing in all the pubs. You go to a soccer game, the, the, the sing, football if I was over there, but soccer here, it's, it's singing. The grown men singing. Grown men singing in the United States is some sign of wimpiness, I guess. I don't know. And they're singing everywhere. One of the things that's so rich about our ministry when we go to Kenya and we train pastors over there is to hear the Kenyans open up in song. Acapella, harmony, all the harmony. And, and they sing with joy and consistency because they have a Lord worth singing about. So the admonition to us is to sing. Now, it's not just singing. We, we sing here every Sunday. We, it's not just singing. It is the singing and the praising and the glorifying God that all marks our life as a believer because our lives are an act of worship to God every single moment of every single day. And yet there's this glorious, God-honoring power when God's people gather together and worship together. And the Spirit is moving among us and our, our voices are lifted up. That's what Isaiah is going to talk to us about, is the new song. Talking to people who are in exile, waiting to return, but bringing them a message that's much more than just, I will send a deliverer to you. So this morning, we want to consider, we'll consider many things, but one thing I want us to consider most of all is the new song that we are to sing. We'll learn what it is. We'll learn why we sing it. But I want us to be encouraged to sing, to sing in our hearts, to sing in our families. To, the, the singing that we do, and, and, and you'll see as we, bring, as we broaden this out, it's not merely singing. There are many other commands given along with the new song, that the new song is part of what we do. It's part of our words that we give as well. And we'll learn the source of that song and the content of that song. But the admonition towards today is, are we singing? Are we remembering what has been done for us by God in Christ, applied through the Spirit, when we're up to our necks in the mud pit? When everyday things crush us and we get overwhelmed and we get upset and we get angry and we get frustrated, is the first thing to let all that out? I deserve this. I'll lead that parade on some days. You want to join me in that? That some days you just do it? I deserve to be angry. I deserve to be, I, I deserve to be frustrated with this. Well, God says, sing. The mud pit, it's just a few minutes. Singing is forever. So may we turn into singers of new songs this morning. Stand, if you will, and we'll read our text from Isaiah 42. Beginning in verse 10. 
Sing to Yahweh a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing and joy, sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare his praise in the coastlands. As the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept silent and restrained myself. Now, I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know in paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Well, let's remind ourselves of where we've been. It will make more sense of our text this morning. Remember that we started this new section of Isaiah in chapter 40 where there was that great promise that God will come. He will come and he will redeem his people and he will send his servant. He will send Christ himself, the Messiah, to come and redeem his people. That's the promise in Isaiah 40. One of the changes that we see in the audience in Isaiah 40 is that Isaiah is lifting. Not, he's not, not talking to the people in the late um, 8th, early 7th century. He's not, not talking to them, but he's now focusing on those who are in Babylonian captivity 140 or 50 years later and their return from captivity. So that he's lifted us a little bit more. And then as the book continues, he gives us hints of lifting our eyes even further to another horizon, that other horizon of the coming of Christ and then the second coming of Christ. And we'll see this develop as we go through the rest of Isaiah as we get through chapter 66. In chapter 42, we have the, this uh, picture of the servant. And we said that this was the first of four servant songs talking about the Messiah to come uh, that occur in Isaiah. And remember that as we're, as we're in this section, this section from chapter 40 to 48, we see um, several mentions of the servant and all but one are referring to Israel as God's servant. 40 to 48, only one reference to the servant refers to the Messiah, and that's what we looked at last week in chapter 42. Now, to put this in contrast, in the first 39 chapters, the word servant only occurs three times, and it, and it refers to three different people. It refers to Isaiah himself, to Eliakim, the steward, remember, and it refers to David as God is keeping the promises that he made to, um, to his, his leader, David. 
So three times in the first 39 chapters, all referring to three different people. And then when we get to chapters 40 through 48, we see it 11 times. Ten times about Israel, and they're usually the failing servant or the servant who is about to be redeemed. One time about the Messiah. And then when we go to chapters 49 through 53, we see seven mentions of the servant. One of them is about Israel, the first one. All the other six are about the Messiah. And then when we get to chapters 54 to, to 66, there's no mention of a servant. So servant is one of the driving themes in this section of Isaiah. So we met this servant, and, and we said last week that this, these four servant songs will develop the Messiah. Remember, it'll develop the Messiah into the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, beginning in chapter 52 and on into 53. We'll see the idea of who this Messiah is being developed through this time. So I want to draw your attention into chapter 2 to just the last couple of verses here. We, we have this promise that Yahweh, who is the creator, will, will give breath, who gives breath to all the people and creates everything in the world, that he is the one who will keep the, the servant on his mission. He is the one who gives the mission to his servant. Look at verse 8 of chapter 42. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new thing and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now that's important as we move into the next section of chapter 42. But remember what he's talking about here. Remember in chapter 41, in 20, 41, verse 21 and following, there was the challenge to the idols. Do you remember that? The idols were to tell not only tell what happened in the past, but they were to tell the meaning of what happened in the past. And when there were crickets chirping, because, of course, no idol can do that, then God says, well, here's another way. Tell me what the future is going to be. Tell me what's going to happen in the future so that we can be fearful of you in the same way that the people who worshipped idols earlier in the chapter were fearful of Yahweh when he acted. So the challenge was there, and no idol came forward. So God was demonstrating that Yahweh was better than the idols, stronger than the idols, that he was God and the idols were not. So when, when we see in chapter 42 this reminder that he, the former things have come to pass, which the idols couldn't do, and the new things I now declare, and the new things in context is what? It's his servant. It's the servant that we're meeting the first of the four servant songs. So all that leads us up to chapter 42, verse 10, when he says, sing to Yahweh a new song. So the new is about the new things that he just declared in chapter 41, verse 9, which is the Messiah, who, which is the servant who is the Messiah. So this helps us when we get to chapter 10 to be focused on the ultimate fulfillment of these verses. We are going to see, if I was in and you were in Babylon in captivity, and you heard these words read from Isaiah, you would be reminded that God is your Savior. And you would be reminded that He's powerful and can deliver you from this captivity. But if you're listening, you're also being reminded that there's more to it than just physical deliverance, that there's a spiritual uh, connotation in all the words that are given. So that brings us up to our verse, 42, verse 10. And in 10 through 17, we are shown two reactions to Yahweh's new thing, 
which is redemption through his promised servant. Two reactions to Yahweh's new thing, redemption through his promised servant. So the first reaction we see in just two points, the first and the second reaction. The first reaction, the world sings a new song in response to God's promise of redemption through his servant. Look at verse 10. We're going to look at this, 10 and 11 and 12, and we're, we're going to kind of rip it apart a little bit under a couple of headings. Who's being commanded to sing? And secondly, what are they to be singing? So let's just take a look at the who. Sing to Yahweh a new song, and we can put sing his praises from the end of the earth. Okay, so there's our first hint that we're talking about everyone and everybody, right? The end of the earth. When Isaiah uses these kind of language, as well as coastlands or islands, your, your version might have, we're talking about the farthest flung reaches of the world. So we see right from the beginning that this singing is from all, from the end of the earth. Look at the next phrase. All and those who go down to the sea. So now we're, we're talking about to the west, out toward the Mediterranean Sea, and all that fills it. Do you catch that? It's just not the people who are going down, but it is all the, all the creatures that fill the sea that are commanded to do this praising. The coastlands, the last phrase of verse 10, and their inhabitants. So the furthest reaches of the earth and all who live there, all the inhabitants. Look at verse 11. Let the desert and its cities and the villages that Kedar inhabits. So Kedar, we've met Kedar before. He is the, the second son of Ishmael. Ishmael. We met him already in Isaiah chapter 21. We'll see him again in Isaiah chapter 60. But remember, he was the father of a, of a nation and a place that was very wealthy. They were kind of Bedouin. They were kind of traveling. And in, verse, and in chapter 21, God says that he will judge so strongly that even their wealth will be reduced to nothing. So now we're, 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 being a, we're painting a geographical area of where this praise comes from. It's all the earth. It is to the far coastlands. It is to the west, down to the sea. It is to the north in the Syrian desert, which is where Kedar is. And then the second half of verse 11, let the inhabitants of Selah or Selah sing for joy. And then let them shout from the top of the mountains. So that is to the southeast of Jerusalem, probably the, 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 the Petra, the fortress of Petra, the Edomite fortress. That's probably where it is. So you can see geographically, it's not just the importance of each place mentioned. It is the expanse of the praise. It comes from everywhere, from everyone, and from everything. Because the creation, the desert itself, the inhabitants of of the, of the sea, they are all to be singing. The, the idea of shouting from the top of the mountains, it's, it's to make your singing and your praising have the farthest reach. This kind of reminds us of Romans chapter 8, doesn't it? Where, where all creation leans forward as if tugging on a leash, leans forward, waiting for the redemption of the sons of men because in the redemption of the sons of men, that is the redemption, the renewal of um, all of creation that was put under a curse by God, not because of what they did, but because of the sin of man. This, we, we see a forecast of that fulfillment, that yearning. So the who? All creatures, all people from all places are commanded to sing. Now, I'm going to tell you that it doesn't make a lot of sense that they're, all the world is to sing because God's going to raise up Cyrus and deliver his people to come back to Jerusalem. 
it makes more sense that the singing is over the new thing, the servant who will come and provide salvation, complete and total salvation for his people, and God will direct the movements of that servant. And so all the world who will receive the benefits of that servant should be praising. Now, what are they to do? We're focusing on singing to the Lord a new song a little bit. There are nine places that occurs in Scripture, and we're going to look at those a little bit later um, to, to help us understand more fully the content of the song that we are to sing. But it's not merely singing, is it, that's commanded. Look at your text and look at these verses where you see, Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing His praise. You skip down to verse 11. Lift up their voice. Sing for joy, the third line of verse 11. Shout from the top of the mountains. Verse 12, give glory to Yahweh. Declare his praise in the coastland. So we're, we're, we're talking about singing. Singing is a unique gift from God because it is from his, create, his highest creative order, the human beings. It's wonderful to play instruments, but when his people sing, it's the voice boxes that he created that he breathed life into, and we're using those to sing to him, and our content needs to be biblical, um, discipling, disciple-making, God-glorifying content. But it's not merely singing that new song according to this, is it? It is a life of praise, lifting up our voice in song, but also in testimony. In song and in testimony, where also it's described as singing for joy. Mark that. It is amazing how many times I can look out at our body who sings wonderfully, by the way. We are a singing congregation, and I'm thankful for that. But it's amazing how many times it looks like the frozen chosen. Because we're singing, but sometimes we lack some joy. Could it be that we're going through the motions? The words are on the screen. He says to sing, so we're going to sing. See, what we sing should, it reminds us of the God about whom we sing, and so we should be filled with joy. That singing, that reading of Scripture, hearing Scripture read, testimony being given, all of that is reminding us of the work that God has done in Christ, and it brings us joy because we are up to our necks in mud. But we are the people who can be joyful up to our necks in mud. And as long, I love the illustration because it's only up to our necks. Remember when the judgment came earlier in Isaiah and they had judged, the judgment was not only going to go to the northern kingdom, but it was going to come to the southern kingdom and it said that it will rise up like water, like a river, like the great river, up to their necks. And remember the hope we got there because it was only up to their necks. The judgment was limited. It still allows our voice to sing, doesn't it? And, to, and to, to preach and to pray and to give glory to God. But also, it's described as a shout from the mountaintops. So it's not just personal, is it? It's not just you and the Lord on the golf course. It's, it's from the mountaintops so that all the world can hear. Remember, I want you to look here, back in verse 10 or verse 11. Oh, where am I looking for? We're singing his praise in verse 10. From the end of the earth, verse 11, shouting from the mountain's tops, verse 12, giving glory to Yahweh and declaring his praise in the coastlands. Now, that's the furthest place, but what have we learned about the coastlands? 
Remember earlier in the chapter we learned about the coastlands that when God acted, or not in this chapter, in chapter 41, when God acted and he revealed himself because he says he's stirring up Cyrus to do his work, verse 5 of chapter 41 says, the coastlands have seen, they've seen the work of the Lord and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come, but everyone helps his neighbor and says to his neighbor, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the, so the soldering, it is good, and the strengthening it with nails so that it cannot be moved. So the coastlands are the ones that see the work of God, refuse to bow before him, and they curl up in fear and start to build more idols. They're the people we're commanded to sing to. We're commanded to sing in the coastlands. Well, that's from the mud to all the people trapped in the mud. Right? This is our role as well. It's an evangelistic shout. It's from the mountaintops, and it is also in the midst of the people who have already proven that they are idol worshipers and refuse to turn to the Lord. I think there are a few of those in our world today, just like there always have been. Well, we are singing, and what are we doing? We're singing, we're praising, we're lifting our voice, we're shouting from the mountaintops, we're giving glory to Yahweh. Giving glory to Yahweh. And how do we do that? We do that with our words. We're singing. We're witnessing. We're evangelizing. We're witnessing with our lives as well because our lives are submitted to him for what he has done in Christ. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him. That is also a way of giving glory to the Lord. Our mouths are still free even though the mud's to our neck. So, I'm focusing on the singing a new song, but the content of it is all of our lives. All of our lives. Because our lives individually are an act of worship to God. Everything that we do, we are living our lives as an act of worship. And when we do that in the midst of a lost and dying world, the lost and dying world should see Jesus and not us. They should see what Jesus has done in us. They should hear about what Jesus has done in us. Our lives should reflect a battle with sin that proves that Jesus has worked in us and continues to work in us. There should be a difference that they see. All of that is giving glory to God. So the singing of the new song, which we'll get to the content in a little bit, the singing of the new song is our lives and our mouths and our word and our singing and everything, giving glory to God for what he has done in Christ. Remember, the new song is sung in response to the new thing that Yahweh has done in Christ by sending his son. That's the context. And we'll see that even more clearly as we go along. So the commands are to sing, to, to sing praise, to lift up our voices, to sing with joy, or sing for joy, uh, to, to shout from the mountaintops, to give glory. And it's to the whole world. The whole world should be praising, and the whole world should be hearing the praise of what God has done. And we see the evangelistic element right there in verse 12. Because it's to the coastlands, to the lost, to those who are still trapped in darkness and idolatry that we are to be declaring the praise of our God. Well, verse 13 moves our eyes away from what we're to doing and why God is uh, the reason that we give this praise. I want you to notice that verse 13 is in the third person. Verse 14 is in the first person. So verse 14 begins speaking of from God is speaking himself. Verse 13 is Isaiah reminding us why we're singing and praising and giving glory. And it's talking about Yahweh. Look what it says in verse 13. 
Yahweh goes out like a mighty man, like a mighty warrior, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, and he shows himself mighty against his foes. This is a God who's passionate about what he's doing, isn't he? This is a God who is using all of his might. He is the mighty warrior, that, that image that we see in the psalm. I want, to, I want you to turn to two places. I want you to keep your finger in Isaiah 42, and I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Come on, let me hear those pages. We're the Bible church. Exodus chapter 15. And if you're scrolling on your phone, go. I jest. I could hear it now. The rest of the life, every time somebody scrolls on the phone, they're going to go. Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. This is the song of Moses after the delivery of their deliverance from from Pharaoh. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths of the stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power, your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The seas covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. This is the image that the people hearing Isaiah in the, in the 8th century, hearing Isaiah in captivity would have thought of more than anything else of God as a mighty warrior, the one that was powerful enough to deliver them from Egypt, that was powerful enough to cause the waters to stand up and the people to walk through and then the waters to go back down again over the enemy. And God did that and, and overpowered all of the enemy and all of their gods. This is what they would have thought about and they would have said, if he can do that, and he can do anything. And it's still a motive, motif that will come up for us later on. And I want to just visit one more passage on this in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 63. Just a few pages over. We'll probably get there by next week or so, don't you think? Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 1. The same image will direct their gaze to his final coming. 
Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who tread in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Listen, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought my salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood in the earth. Do you hear these strong words of destruction of his enemy, of judgment of his enemy? But right there in verse 4 reminds us of something that we need to be reminded of in Isaiah. The day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Remember, throughout the scriptures, and it's evident in Isaiah, it's been a while since we've reminded ourselves of this, the judgment and the redemption of God happen at the same time. In God's judging, he is redeeming. In God's judging his enemy, he is redeeming his people. And the dividing line there is whether they've repented and turned to God in Christ or whether they are still making and building and worshiping idols. That's the dividing line. It's the dividing line right here. Verse 17 and verse 16 and 17 show us that as well. So in the judgment of God is the redemption of God. So let's keep this in mind because the muds up to our necks today is the judgment of God. There's no question. It's been said by many people over the years that when God wants to judge a nation, he'll put wicked people in charge of that nation. I think he's kind of done that today. So there's no question that God is judging us as a nation, but our necks are up to the mud, but our mouths are still singing what? Redemption in Jesus Christ. Redemption in the work of God in Christ. Salvation in Christ and Christ alone to a world that is full of idolatry. So our mission doesn't change. Remember that. God's character and our mission doesn't change no matter what he's orchestrated us to walk in or to live in. It could be a sunshiny day or a rainy day with mud up to our necks, but nothing changes with God. He is working out his will and his way according to his time. So this, back in Isaiah chapter 42, this description of God, this is his passion. Yahweh goes out like a mighty man. You remember that we're... We have to keep some things in mind from Isaiah as well, that the, the Messiah is a mighty one as well. Remember, the Messiah is Yahweh as well. Remember, we proved that from Isaiah's call in Isaiah chapter 6, that Yahweh is, is usually in the Old Testament, Yahweh is talking about the, God the Father, but the Old Testament and the New Testament both bestow that title onto Christ as well. And so when we see words like this, we're also reminded of, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's, that's the Messiah that we met already in chapter 9 of Isaiah. Mighty God. So God the Father, Yahweh, is mighty. He's a man of war. And he is raising himself up in his zeal, stirring up his zeal. Remember at the end of, chapter, of that phrase in that section in chapter 9 that we just quoted with the four titles? How does, it, how does it end? And the zeal of Yahweh will do this. 
sending his Savior. So we're seeing a nod to God working in his servant as the reason for our song, our praise, for giving glory to God. Well, the world sings a new song in response to God's promise of redemption through his servant. But second, the second response to this new thing to which a new song should be sung, God reveals his passion for redeeming his people through his promised servant. Look at verse 14. Here we change into the first person Yahweh himself is speaking. For a long time I have held my peace. Literally, I have remained silent. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. So we have this picture of God responding to his own will of delay with an emotional response of finally, finally, I am doing what I promised to do. And that no one has stopped him. No, no, no being has said, I'm going to fight you, and it's kind of delayed God, kind of like the angel was delayed coming to Daniel. None of that happens. God, by his own timing, has delayed. And now, as he acts, it's, it's like a woman giving birth who knows what's coming knows what's happening at the end of her pregnancy. And at the end of that pregnancy, it gets harder and harder and harder until there's pain and suffering, and then the goal is met. God is using that same image to say, I have limited myself. I have limited myself in my acting, but as I get ready to act, I, I'm feeling the release of doing what I want to do, what I want to accomplish. And you can, if we if we can picture ourselves from God's standpoint watching the world stand against him, and yet by his own plan and purpose, he's delayed, and I think this is the sending of his son, the first coming of Christ that's being mentioned here, and he's delayed until what? Such a time. When the time was right. We see this phrase um, twice in Galatians and in Ephesians that, that this is God. The, the um, what was the phrase? I don't even have it written down here. Let me turn to it. Fullness of time. Thank you. This is what happens when you have a vacuous mind. And all of a sudden you know something's in there and you can't find it. It's in the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4 4 says, in the fullness of time God sent his son. There was a reason that he delayed. And it was for his own purposes. But Ephesians 1 says all of sending Christ was a plan for the fullness of time. The plan for that fullness of time was sending Christ on his mission. Here is, is a nod to all of that wait for Christ coming and the servant being sent and God's passion to do this. Look at verse 15. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. Now, we've seen that language already uh, uh, several times in Isaiah, haven't we? Sometimes it's building up. Sometimes it's tearing down. Sometimes it's filling. Sometimes it is turning, them, turning the, the bodies of water dry. So when we see this in Isaiah, it is a common expression talking about the judgment of God and the redemption of God. It's been that way throughout the book. So he is using that same language, but it's got a local understanding for us, doesn't it? Remember back in chapter 40? Turn back a couple of pages to Isaiah 40. Look in verse 3. A voice cries, 
in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So that is already in the promise of chapter 40 and following. This idea of tearing things down and making the way straight. And that's what we should keep in mind here as these verses progress. Because look what happens next in verse 16. He says, I'm going to lay waste to mountains and hills. I'm going to flatten them. I'm going to turn rivers into islands. I'm clearing a path. And then verse 16 tells us why. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. So I want you to see, in the midst of judgment is tenderness towards these people. It's this tenderness. And look what he says first. Isn't it interesting? The mission of the servant was to open blind eyes, among other things, right? To open blind eyes. Look what he says in verse 16. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. Their eyes aren't even opened yet. But this is the way he's leading. Now, if you've ever known someone who's blind, they are not unable to get around, right? They are, una- they are able to get around. Once they know their surroundings and they have, they, they have this great sense of, of, of where they're going and steps between each thing, they can get places. They're not unable to move. But going someplace that they haven't known before can be difficult. It can be harder. And God hasn't even opened their eyes yet. And yet he's leading them in places they've never been. He's guiding them. What a sweet picture of us being drawn to God. What a sweet picture of us being drawn to the Lord as before we're even regenerated, where our hearts are turned, where our eyes are opened, where we see God, and now we're passionate about God instead of, enemies, instead of enemies against him. What a great picture that he is doing the leading. This is just another way that maybe has even escaped you that God is sovereign in salvation. It's not that we wander around and say, hey, I think we need some light in this place, don't you? Yeah, I think we do. Well, let's go find it. We're stumbling in our darkness. In fact, we like the stumbling in our darkness. We like living at night. We like doing the things people do in dark. We enjoy that. We have no desire for the light, and yet God leads us to the light. He draws us to his Son through the work of his Spirit. Clearly taught to us here, because the second half of verse 16 I will turn the darkness before them, where he's leading them, where he's guiding them, into light and the rough places into level ground. And then the great and greatest promise, right? These things I will do, and I do not forsake them. If God is intended to do this in the lives of the elect, in the lives of the people that he has set his affection on before the foundation of the world, then he will do this. And nothing will thwart him because in his son, he gives all of the elect, all of the ones he intends to redeem. And the son says what? I will lose none. All that the father has given me. Such a sweet picture of the work of God in Christ. This is why I say this. There is no way this is only about Cyrus. 
This is about the song that we sing to all the nations of what Jesus has done to lead people out of light, out of darkness into light and turn their darkness into light so that they now live in the light according to his principles and walk according to his life because it is him living in them. And God says, this is what I stir myself up. I stir up my zeal to accomplish this at the proper time. And I also want you to notice that in these verses, 18 times we see Yahweh saying he will do something. Not us. He will do it. 18 times. Just look through there real quick. I will lay waste to the mountains. I will draw up all the vegetation. If you can even go before, I, I should have started in four, verse 14. I have held my peace. I have kept still. I have restrained myself. I cry out now like a woman in labor. I will gasp. I will pant. I will lay waste to the mountains. I will lay waste to the hills. I will dry up all the vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands. I will dry up all the pools. I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. I will turn the rough places into level ground. These things I do and I do not forsake them. Isn't that a hallelujah thing? Salvation is not up to us. It's up to him. Our job Turn from idols to the living God because God has infested you with his presence. God has sent his spirit to draw you from darkness into light and your role is to respond to that with that regenerated heart to turn from idols unto the living God. This is the song that we sing. Look back at your text. Verse 17 how do you, if you're going to be a part of these people, how does it happen? How does it happen if you were one who was led from darkness into light? And how does it happen if you're not led? Verse 17 tells us. They are turned back <clears throat> and utterly put to shame. Who? Those who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. In other words, those who say, I don't care what God has done. I want no part of him. I don't care what you tell me about Jesus. I want no part of him. My idols, which in, in, in a spiritual realm, the idol that keeps us from God is ourselves, our own righteousness, what we think is righteous enough to save us, what the works that we think God should be pleased with, the, the heaven that would be not blessed enough without us there. That kind of, of thinking are the ones who they're turned back and utterly put to shame. Is that where you are today? Is that where you are? are? Are you playing along with this Jesus thing? That you hear Jesus all the time? You hear about him as being the only way to salvation, the only way to the Father, and yet every day you leave this place and you leave your family and you leave your, your, the situations where the gospel might be prominent and you go out and you live your life as if you are God, as if you can redeem yourself? This passage is clear that you will be turned back and put to utter shame. You will literally be shamed with shame, is what the text says. That's what happens on the day of judgment. Now, thankfully, God, in his mercy, has not sent his Christ a second time. 
Thankfully, that delay is meant to lead you into repentance. Thankfully, you're still breathing and Christ has not come. So today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day that you say this new thing, this servant, this Messiah, this Jesus who has come and lived and died and risen again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus, I bow to him. I, re- I repent of my sin. I turn away so that I'm not turning toward my idols. I'm turning away from my idols and to Christ so that I can have this eternal life. And I leave all of my own works behind and I claim his. If that's you today, today is the day of your salvation. And when we close today, you need to talk to somebody next to you. Tell them that happened and let them give uh, glory to God on, your be- on, on his behalf for saving you and help you know what to do next. Now, if we're here this morning and we have already done this and we have already placed our faith in Christ, why on earth are we not singing? Why are we not giving glory? Why are we not praising? Why are we not standing on the mountaintops even while we're up to our necks in mud? Well, that song is Jesus. And I want to just walk us through a couple of places to fill us up with what this is. Nine times in the scripture, we see a command to sing a new song. Now, remember, when we say sing a new song, Isaiah is telling us it's praising, it's giving glory, it's speaking, it's shouting. It's not just singing, but it is our testimony that comes. But it definitely includes singing. Because through the scriptures, when God has acted in salvation, his people respond in song, in song. This is just what happens to people when they're redeemed. Our culture and our history and our, and our own situation snuffs that out at times, but we should be singing, praising, evangelizing, preaching people. And the content of that is Christ. I want you to turn, we're only going to turn to a couple of passages, so don't think I'm going to wear you out here. Turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Six commands in the Psalms, one in Isaiah and two in Revelation to sing a new song. Psalm 33 is the first of these. Look at verse one. I want you to look at all the commands that are here. We're going to see the same kinds of things that we saw in Isaiah 42. Shout for joy to Yahweh, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to Yahweh with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Why? For the word of Yahweh is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. So five different commands are mentioned. Incidentally, this is the first place in the Psalms that we see a mention of using, uh, using instruments in our worship. It's the first time it's commanded and the first time that we see it. Verse 4 and 5 give the reasons. Now, this, this hasn't changed, right? God's word, uh, the Yahweh's word, is still upright. All his work is still done in faithfulness. He still loves righteousness. He still loves justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh, and it grows and grows and grows as he redeems more people, right? This is all still. Lamentation says the steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So if 
The Lord's mercies to us in Christ are new every morning. How often should we think of a new song? Every morning. Every morning. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to go to music school and learn how to compose music. We need more people to go to music school and compose music for the Lord. We need that, but that's not what we're talking about. Every morning, the mercies of God in Christ to me and to you, they're new. They're brand new. They're manifested in different ways because God orchestrates every day for us differently. He gives us different challenges. He gives us different joys. He gives us different responsibilities. The responsibilities are different when your kids are young than when your kids have left home. Your responsibilities are different before you're married and when you're married. Your responsibilities are different when you're a child still under the authority of your parents and when you're married and you become your own family. But the mercies of the Lord never stop coming, and they're new every morning. So our songs, our praises, our giving glory to God, every day they should be new, constant, regular. Turn to Psalm 40. Verse 1. I waited patiently for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. It's a picture of salvation, isn't it? Salvation through, for our spiritual life, forgiveness of sin, and salvation every day when we are trying to pursue sin instead of Christ. Repenting and turning toward him, this is what he does. So what do we do? We follow what he has done in us. This is the one time out of the nine times that it's mentioned that it's not a command to sing or an example of singing. It's telling us that the Lord has placed that in us. Look at verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh. You see this? He saves us. Puts a song in our mouth about that salvation. We sing it, other people see it, and they fear God. It's a wonderful thing that our testimony, God uses for him to draw people unto himself. And this is one of the places that we're told about the new song. Sing, and we saw this in Isaiah 41 as well, that singing leads to us being delivered and, and singing about that deliverance and others see and fear. So our witness our singing about God, our giving glory to him is evangelistic because it's about him and what he's done in Christ to redeem us and not us. Turn to Psalm 96. Look at verse 1. Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Sing to Yahweh, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Why? For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. 
And it goes on to talk about this, ascribing to the Lord glory in the nations. You see all the similarities with Isaiah. We won't park there, nor will we park in the next one, just two psalms over, Psalm 98, verse 1. Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song. Why? For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Yahweh has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to Yahweh all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and with the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, and make joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before Yahweh. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. It's the same themes that we see in Isaiah chapter 42. Psalm 144, verse 9. David sings a new song because God has rescued him from his cruel enemies. A personal rescue. David praises and sings to Yahweh's name because he saved David from his enemies. And in so doing, the nations are witness to his praise. That's all what we see in Psalm 144. Psalm 149, 1, we are commanded to sing this new song in the assembly of the godly because Yahweh is our maker and king. This is why we sing. The New Testament says that we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another so that the word of Christ will dwell richly in us. That's why we have to sing richly dwelling songs. We have to sing songs that are about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, how all their work works out in our life. We don't want to sing wimpy songs. We don't want to sing, sing songs about my boyfriend Jesus. We want to sing songs about our mighty God who has acted in his time to send his son to save all the people he intends to save from their sin through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ and to remember that he's coming again to take us to the place he's prepared. That's the content of our singing. How do we know that? Turn to Revelation chapter 14. We've already seen Revelation We've already had Revelation chapter 5 read where we see one of two new song commands, but I want you to turn to 14. In Revelation chapter 5 where Damon read that new song is sung because the lamb who was slain and ransomed people through his blood from every tribe and language and people and nation made them a kingdom of priests to God because he is worthy to open the scroll. And now in chapter 14, then I looked, verse 1, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the Lord. Yeah, from the earth, I'm sorry. I was making a decision how far to read here, and I jumped ahead. When we get to heaven, 
when the new heavens and new earth come down and we are there singing forever, we're going to be the only ones who know the song because we're the only ones who are going to be there with the Lord. The idolaters will be in a different place. The ones who refuse to bow the Lord. You see, it is the Lord who provides the song because it is the Lord who provides the Savior. And our role forever will be to sing a song that we will know, a song that is about Christ and his work, a song that will sustain us as we remind ourselves of that work, God in Christ, and that will be what we do forever. So I challenge you, in this life, why don't we start practicing more? In this life, why don't we make our words, whether sung or spoken, our lives as they are lived, bring praise to God, sing his glories, sing his praises. Let's the new song be new every morning. I read this week about a tribe in India. And for centuries, they have given little clips of music to identify each person. They have names, but the mother sings a melody over the child. And that melody calls that child all of their life. One woman said about the 700 people that live in her village, she knows about 400 of the songs. And as the children go past her shop, she sings their song. And they're just little, they're just little snippets. They're just little snippets of music. And they're all different. And the mother sings them over the child, and that identifies them forever. Isn't that amazing? And they know these songs. If someone new comes to the tribe, if somebody marries someone outside of the tribe, one of the mothers or sisters sing a song over that person, and now they have their own name as entrance into their tribe. Now, this is what Zephaniah says the Father does over us. We sing a song like that, you know? The Father is singing over you. Come rejoice and be glad. The Father is singing over you. This is what Zephaniah tells us that the Father does. He redeems us and then sings over us because of his joy. Because remember, he has done this at the, at the time that he purposed to do in the way that he purposed to do it. And every time somebody comes to faith in Christ, it further brings him glory. John Piper once said a long time ago that evangelism exists because worship doesn't. A very powerful phrase that has stuck with many people, and you've probably heard before. But the purpose is, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, no more evangelism is needed. But there will be worshipers. All that the Father intends to be there will be there. And he sings over us, and we sing to him. And we get the benefit and glory and blessing of living that life here while the mud is up to our necks. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are that you have redeemed us, you have put life in us, you have called us unto righteousness. You have given us the gift of your son so that we, when we stand on judgment day, we stand because of what he has accomplished. When we stand on judgment day, our, our fate is secure because our Christ is finished in his work. So this morning, Father, we are grateful to you and we ask you as we recognize the mercies new every morning that you remind us every morning of what you've accomplished in Christ, what a blessing that is to us and put a new song in our mouth for that day so that we might bring glory to you with our lips, with our heart and with our life. We thank you for this in Jesus name. Amen.